Welcome to the 203rd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Manu Sadia, author of the nonfiction book Treconomics, a book about the economics of Star Trek. Stay tuned for the interview. This episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast is sponsored by Ben Zakheim, author of the fantasy novel The Camelot Kids Book One. Get the ebook today that fantasy blogger A Chick Who Reads says will take you back to the day when you first read Harry Potter. Available on Amazon.com. To read more about the Camelot Kids or Ben's other series, The Shirley Link Mysteries for Kids, head to benzakheim.com or follow him on Twitter at Zakheim. Again, this episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast is sponsored by The Camelot Kids Book One. On sale for $2.99 on Amazon.com. Check it out today. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Manu Sadia, author of the book Treconomics. His work on Treconomics has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Business Insider. Manu, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Well, can you read two or three pages from your book, Treconomics? I can do that. Um, I will read from the beginning of Chapter 6, which is called uh, That Future, That Space Station, All Those People, They Exist, and Sources of Treconomics in Classic Science Fiction. The system goes online August 4, 1997. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. Skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate. It becomes self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern Time, August 29. And then, kaboom. When it comes to intelligent machines, those famous lines from Terminator 2 are the sum of all our fears. Arnold Schwarzenegger delivers them in his inimitable Austrian-accented drone. There is no matter... There is no better modern version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Machines of our own creation escape our control, find us unworthy of life, and proceed to remove us from the face of the earth. Terminator 2 is called Judgment Day for a reason. As in Mary Shelley's masterpiece, there is an undeniable element of Christian mythology in Terminator. That is probably why dystopian science fiction never fails to capture our imaginations. It is the same old morality play, the original sin and the fall of man, but projected into the future. It is meant to terrify and to edify, and it works. You don't go around playing God with impunity, little man. That narrative has been the bread and butter of science fiction for the past 200 years. Intelligent machines as agents of apocalypse are a trope, a tradition. In the few stories that do not follow in that tradition, Robots are either peripheral or simply ignored. Their role in society, a properly economic question if there ever was one, is seldom a topic of contention. Take, for instance, the biggest science fiction franchise in the history of the world, Star Wars. Paradoxically, in the Star Wars universe, both the Old Republic and the Empire use armies of clones and robots while tolerating slave labor at the same time. Uncle Owen purchases robots from the Jawas, yet demands that Luke Skywalker, his impetuous nephew, postpone his plans 
to become a pilot in order to help with the harvest. This suggests that Uncle Owen cannot actually afford more robots, and so take full advantage of workforce automation. Star Wars society is unequal. Some have the means to avail themselves of robots, clones, and slaves. Others must make do and scrape by with the help of their immediate families and nephews. Such an arrangement is closer in nature to the Roman Empire or the early American Republic, an oligarchic minority controlling armies of forced laborers, whether they be protocol droids, clone troopers, or slaves, and the rest of the populace seemingly surviving. In its world-building, Star Wars is looking backwards, so to speak. Then there are those stories whose explicit objective is to explore current political-economic realities under the guise of speculative fiction. In these works, the social impact of new technology is marginal, relegated to allegory. Think of Frank Herbert's Dune, one of the most significant achievements in all science fiction. Dune distinguishes itself by, summar by summarily excising robots and computers from its universe with a backstory sleight of hand. We are told that some kind of civil war long ago destroyed intelligent machines and established an absolute prohibition on their usage. This is to let the readers know from the start that they should not expect any of the usual gizmos of daddy's good old sci-fi. It clears the air for Herbert's intricate portrayal of Arrakis's unique desert ecosystem and of the humans who inhabit it. Dune is about many things. Power, religion, the colonial exploitation of scarce resources, the complex relations between people and the environment. But it is most definitely not about machines and their place in society. These key examples, called from classic science fiction, the science fiction, illustrate how unique Star Trek truly is in both science fiction and popular culture. It is as if Star Trek turned away from and even flatly rejected the more popular themes of science fiction. Treconomics is what makes Star Trek. In Star Trek's future, technology is not just about the gadgets or about Moore's law of exponential miniaturization, or even about efficiency and competitive advantage in the marketplace. As Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, explained it succinctly in the Next Generation's Bible, quote, technical improvement has gone beyond developing things which are smaller or faster or more powerful, and it is now very much centered on improving the quality of life, In, unquote. In Star Trek's universe, technology is humanistic, if not humanitarian. Artificial intelligence, plentiful energy, and ubiquitous automation not only enable material opulence, but also remove the obligation to work to sustain oneself. With that out of the way, people in Star Trek have more time to devote to other pursuits. For sure, when watching The Next Generation and its successors, the absence of money is what jumps out immediately. It is the most visible and most arresting aspect of Treconomics. Fictional post-scarcity and a more egalitarian distribution of society's wealth may be nice and appealing on paper and can be readily grasped is fleetingly by our 21st century minds. No work at all, on the other hand, that is less obvious. By disentangling humanity's pursuit of happiness from biophysical and economic necessity, Star Trek reprises Isaac Asimov's most original and singular economic proposition. And that's it. Great. Well, some people might be wondering, do, do you have an academic background in economics? Uh, as a matter of fact, I do. Um, uh, I study economic history. Great. 
And I mean, are you are you teaching or are you a, a, no, an academic? No, no, okay. no, no, no. My wife is though. <laughs> so, so do you? I'm remember? a lapsed. I'm a okay. lapsed member of that tribe. Okay. Do you remember your first experience with Star Trek, and what what about Star Trek made such a deep impression on you? I was a kid. I was eight year old, and I was growing up in Paris. Um, and the friend of my dad took me to see the movie, and it was a big big thing like the motion picture so it was in 1980 uh because i had been forbidden to see star wars when i was younger um because it had war in it and my parents were a little eccentric um it was kind of a blast it it really shocked me in many ways um this this was the movie i was looking for um and then it, Star Trek wasn't, we didn't have TV and Star Trek was not on TV anyways. So I, I had to read basically. And so I, I, I started to read uh, Asimov in French. And that was, you know, uh, yeah, in the early 80s. So I, I did grow up reading a lot of science fiction and I was very alone in that uh, because it was not at the time in France, at least it was not something, but I think in the United States as well, it was not something that was what it is today. Um, science fiction is, is pretty much popular culture these days. So it wasn't, and it was a marginal thing to do. And I was a kid and a lot of my, um, I wouldn't say political education, but, uh, um, education simply came out of science fiction. I mean, I, I was in France, and the French educational system is such that you do have to read all your classics. So I did that too. But science fiction remained uh, where I go to uh, find solace and peace. So, so you mentioned um, reading science fiction literature and seeing the, the uh, Star Trek movie. I assume that that was the first Star Trek movie? Oh, yes. That was uh, the motion picture. So. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the one where nothing happens. Sure. Um, so did you later then go back and, and, and watch the original series and, and all of the and the new Next Generation? Yes. Uh, and I became even more uh, entranced. But, you know, I was older as well. So uh, I, I had accumulated more knowledge by then. Uh, the original series started to be shown on TV in France in the late 80s. I still didn't have TV, but I'd go to France's place. Um, so, so that's that is some. I, I, my my viewing, my my viewership or my viewing was really very much informed by then by all the other stuff I'd read, and so. Um, it, it, it was something very interesting. I've always found the TV series more interesting than the movies. Um, and there's a reason for that. And in TV, I mean, at least for me, uh, in TV, you, you do have... TV is much closer to books in a way because you have more time to to expand and develop and build the world. And, and you you can see all the nooks and crannies. In a, in a way, in a movie, you know, it's two hours and it has to pack a punch. And so it's a different experience. Sure. Uh, I, I, I found the pace and the, the, the narrative uh, uh, payoff of watching the series much more interesting. So. so how did you decide to seriously write about the ideas in your book, Treconomics? 
So this is something that had been bouncing around in my head for a while. And, you know, if, if you're kind of an economics nerd, uh, the, the concept of post-scarcity or post-economic society is, is very appealing um, because none of the rules that economists are trying to, to figure out in the real world apply uh, or, or they apply but in a negative way. So this is something that, you know, has been bouncing around in my head. For ten years, probably, and then uh, the the inciting event was um, I, I I live in L.A. and my neighbor uh, used to work on Star Trek Enterprise. He used to be a writer and executive producer, and, and he's a fan of the show as well. And we were discussing around the beer, you know, so what what's missing in the whole universe of Star Trek books and stuff like that, and. I was like, I think economics has not been done. And he looked in his library and I was like, oh, no, it hasn't. You should do it. And I was like, really? <laughs> so I did. Uh, <laughs> and But, but um, it's funny because it's really something that had been, it, it was the main attraction of Star Trek for me. Uh, so this is something that the, the writing itself was not as difficult as I expected because this was something I had been, you know, writing and rewriting in my head for a very long time. So can, in a you way. can you explain the basics of that Star Trek economy? Well, this is a place, a fictional universe, where um, plenty reigns. Uh, you, do, you no longer have to work to sustain yourself. And as a result, um, all that we know of incentives and the drive to accumulate money and things is no longer operating in that society. So people have to find other ways to imbue meaning in their lives. And, and they're not necessarily what we would call today economic behaviors. Um, you have replicators. So there are fictional machines that uh, are, are in fact a metaphor, I would say, for, for automation and for robots. And so the replicator is the ultimate machine. It's the last machine. It's, you, you go up to a replicator and you say, make me this. I want this. Tea, all gray hot. And boom, it appears. Uh, so if you live in a society that has this type of technology, um, what do you do with it? Well, first of all, a lot of uh, the objects and goods and services that have value today no longer have any value because they're uh, reproducible ad infinitum um, by machines that do not uh, necessitate a lot of work or any work. So it raises the question of the place of human labor and human work in our existence. And at the same time, it presents a view of what I would call the end point of the Industrial Revolution. That's why it's so interesting to people who've studied economic history and economics in general. Um, because it, it shows the other side when the process by which um, labor is increasingly replaced by machine has uh, reached its logical end point where there's no work needed anymore. And so as a result, you see these people uh, in Star Trek who have to um, find other ways to distinguish themselves and to um, create uh, meaningful existences for themselves. And they, those we see on the series 
are, are kind of an exception, I would say. They're the exceptional ones. They're the ones who go on starships and go explore and do science. Um, and it, it's very, um, at least for for me, I, I found that absolutely engrossing and, and provocative. And also, when you when you put it back in context, uh, the the context of when the series came out, um, and I'm I'm talking specifically of the next generation. The next generation started its run in 1987, uh, so that's right after the Wall Street crash. The first season it coincided with the movie Wall Street. You know, greed is good. Um, and at the end of the first season, we're in the Reagan years, uh, the go-go 80s. And at the end of the first season, you have this episode where Captain Picard gives this lecture, or very short, but very good, uh, where he says, uh, we have overcome greed and hunger. We have grown out of our infancy. We are uh, the accumulation of things. It's no longer the driving force in our lives. And that's... Uh, I didn't quite put it in the right order, but and no British accent, but <laughs> that is very striking. This is 1987. This is you know uh, under a president whose you know team were avid readers of Ayn Rand. Um, so I find that very strange that this there there's a reason why this was possible then on TV. Uh, but essentially, I mean, you know, people say, oh, Star Trek is socialist. Well, it's not socialist, really, but um, it still really, it, it really stands out against all of the rest of science fiction, but also most of popular culture at the time and even today. Um, and I find that quite uh, amazing and um, inspiring on some level. With the thinking and writing you've done about Trekonomics, what do you see as the major economic problems facing the real world as we sit here today in 2016? So I say that, you know, as a, as, as a, just a writer, um, I'm, I'm not a policymaker and, sure, not, sure. you know, uh, so, so with these caveats, uh, this is only my opinion, but I would say our, our most, uh, the, the most important question that we're facing, and it's a new one, is that of collective action on a global level to solve the problem of what is called in economics negative externalities. So the incurred cost by a third party from a transaction or an economic activity. And I'm speaking specifically here of carbon pollution. Um, and that is something that is new. That is something that we've never faced before. And we do not really have a good um, roadmap uh, as to how to deal with it because we're talking about state actors, private companies, individuals, and, and aggregate of individuals. And we all have to reduce our carbon footprint and carbon emissions very fast while at the same time allowing other countries, less developed countries, to enjoy the benefits of economic growth. So how do you square that circle? I mean, there was the Paris Agreement, and it's just been signed, but it remains incredibly complicated because, um, say, for instance, the oil industry does not want to go out of business, and countries like Saudi Arabia 
need to uh, fuel their growth. Um, and countries like China and India want to achieve, and Indonesia as well, let's not forget, they want to achieve the same standard of living that uh, Western countries are uh, enjoying today. And the way we did that in the West is by polluting the, atmos the atmosphere without even realizing we were doing that. The, the very notion of externality and of measuring it is something that was invented and discovered in economics in, in the 20s. Um, so this, in 1920s. So this is not something that uh, is part of uh, classical economics. And it has taken a long time to figure out what it actually means and what is the cost and how to integrate that into models. So this is, this is the main problem we're facing. Um, you have multiple actors with very different aims and interests. And somehow we have to make everybody accept that the interest of the global community and of the planet supersedes any private interest. Tough. Interesting. And, well, yeah, and I it seems that Star Trek, for instance, like, you know, solves it very easily. Yes. It's a bit maddening in that sense. Sure. Well, I know that there's a lot of discussion about machine learning, artificial intelligence, and robots replacing productive, well-paid human workers. And I'm talking about, obviously, today. Do you yes. think that that fear is real? The fear is real and is entirely warranted. Um, it's not the fear of, you know, the Frankenstein type of fear of our robot overlords will take over and kill us. But it's, it's more a, a fear of bad policy, I would say. Um, in a system where, in an economic system such as ours, and it's the only one we have, um, where work is rewarded and you know paid for um and is is part of the market uh, robots are are <laughs> are deadly efficient uh, they they don't go on strike and they can work 24 hours a day um i was reading yesterday that the, the company in china that makes the iPhones so used to be employed you know hundreds of thousands of young people um assembling you know microscopic parts into the boards of the iPhone now robots are doing these they have 60,000 robots or something um so what happens to these people who relied on um the income to sort of rise up in China's new consumer economy who knows um well they probably went on to college something like that um but the broader question about the the increasing automation of work is is not just a rich world problem, I would say, or even a Chinese problem. I, I'd say the the biggest concern about that is Africa. Uh, and I explain the for the past two hundred years, the the preferred way for a nation to uh, rise uh, economically and raise the standard of living was called import substitution. So say you're Korea or Japan in the 50s and 60s, you start making a lot of stuff, you become the workshop to the world, and then China used the same thing. And um, that way you start employing a lot of people and manufacturers and you start raising standard of living that way and you build universities and you start by assembling, you know, transistor radios, but then 
you do like Korea and you end up with research and development and, and very high tech and, and highly um, uh, human capital intensive activities. The, that path was the, was the known, well-known path to national wealth. Um, if robots become a better solution, then industry and industrialization um, is at risk of turning into the same type of activity as agriculture, which in the developed world represents about 1% of the workforce and uh, does not produce as, as itself you know, a lot of wealth when you look at the GDP numbers. So Africa's population is going to rise tremendously in the, past, in the next 100 years. But it seems that the path to economic development for these nations will be closed. There won't be a way for um, workers from the countryside and the excess new population to find jobs in manufacturing. So what are they going to do? Uh, and to give you a sense of that, Tanzania has uh, about 60, uh, 70 million inhabitants today. It is projected to, uh, to have 300 million by the end of the century. Uh, a country like Malawi, you never hear about Malawi ever, will have 200 million people. And if robotics and automation takes over the task of manufacturing and become extremely efficient that way, chances are there won't be a point in locating um, factories in these countries. And as a result, what is the population going to do? Um, what do you so think they're going to do? Yeah, I mean it's 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 both a rich. No, I mean it's 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 something you know people are losing sleep over because um, you do not have an easy path to development without activities that are rewarding to everybody, sure. um, and you need institutions to manage these transitions. And you and in the West and in China and India, the it with the rise of standard of living, institution developed. Um, more or less well and, you know, more or less democratic. But uh, at, at today, you know, we do have functioning states in these, uh, you know, in India and China, but also in, in the developed world. Um, countries in Africa don't necessarily have as well-developed institutions yet. And you need uh, a tax base, sim <laughs> said simply, to, to sustain and develop these institutions. So it's a real concern. Interesting. So, so what do you think their possible path could be? <laughs> it's it's a very. I mean, I'm. I believe that uh, the value of human capital is is incredibly high. So, developing universities and uh, institutions of higher learning. Is a, is a first step, but in order to do that, you do need money and you do need a functioning state. Sure. Um, and so it's kind of the chicken and the egg there. Uh, is it? Is it? I I don't I know and I've read about how uh, you know institutions like the World Bank uh, try to fund and help local colleges and local universities, but it's still. Um, um, very much on the back burner compared to other. I mean, you know, we're, we still have to eradicate 
malaria. So <laughs> it's it's right. in in the order of problems right now, you know, and eradicate poverty. And so in, in the order of problem, this 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 comes second, and rightly so. But in the long run, I mean. If there are no manufacturing jobs and and agriculture is highly rationalized as well, um, and you have these gigantic mega cities, I mean, not everybody will be able to be a barista at Starbucks. Uh, there will have to be other jobs, and there will have to be other occupations. So, it is a very complicated policy situation. In our countries, it's different because we do have the institutions and we do have the political. Um, processes in place to find a settlement between the diverse factions and interests in society. Um, I mean, it, it will be hard, obviously, but, and there will be dislocations, but, but there is a way we can, we do have the social wealth and we do have the institutions to manage a transition towards um, uh, uh, the automation of manufacturing. Um, it, it will be painful. It is already painful today, and it affects people in their daily lives. But we can do it. If 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 there if there are countries that can do it, it's Europe and the United States and Canada. You know, um, other countries, it's going to be much harder because they're going to have to build their institution, their institutions um, as if faster. Um, so, in a sense, the the future is rushing towards us, and. Uh, some some countries haven't caught up with the present, and uh, for reasons that you know are, are are obviously not necessarily their fault. Uh, so we do have a response. That's the other thing. We do have a responsibility. We uh, the former col- colonial powers. Um, we do have a responsibility. Obviously, are we gonna take it up? I don't know. Uh, it's always uh, uh, it's it's always complicated. Sure. So I'm I'm actually that that's and and thank you for for letting me expound on this because I, I the truth is I, I wrote this book because I was very desperate and I I I am very pessimistic when I you know I'm and the pessimism comes after panic. <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, at first you're like, oh my God, oh my God. But, um, now I'm trying to be rational about it and, and to see all the angles and the new and the, the ins and outs. And it looks very, very challenging that we're going to have a very challenging century. There are very good things happening. And so you have to balance the good and the bad, but, and there are very hopeful signs out there, but it's going to be a very hard century. Um, and I'm, I'm quite, uh, anxious about the future. And sure. so my, my go-to place whenever I, you know, growing up, whenever I felt depressed, uh, what I would do was to open a science fiction book or watch Star Trek. And so I've, I've, I've done that a little, you know, in a different way by writing the book. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking about something that's hopeful and inspiring and, 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 hopefully puts a smile on your face um, because it does for me. Uh, but uh, underneath, uh, I am not so sanguine. <laughs> so are you, are you still reading science fiction literature? Yes, I am. Um, but I have been, uh, uh, the last science fiction book I read, but I don't know if it qualifies as science fiction, is Charlie J. Anders' 
uh, All the Birds in the Sky. It's a beautiful okay. book. Um, yes. But, I mean, any, is it any, any authors that come to mind in the last several years that really uh, oh. that made an impact on your impression? Well, William Gibson's last book as well was The Peripheral, was a um, tremendous read. Um, so I stay, <laughs> I, I'm not very original. I stay, I stay with my classics. I, I wish I had more time to keep up with, uh, sure, sure. all the stuff that comes out. I really like Scalzi as well. I mean, he, he writes amazing stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I realize I read a lot more of, uh, real world nonfiction things <laughs> these days, um, as I'm preparing for the next opus. So, um, that, so I, was just, I was just about to ask you, are you writing another book or planning one? Yeah, I, I am in the research phase of uh, the next one. And, you know, I've been toying around various things. Um, but now I, th- I think I have, a, I, I have a sense of duty to, um, you know, <laughs> write some, some sort of the same book, but uh, from the non-pop cultural and from the pessimistic point of view. Um it's not the same book, but it's 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 going to be about this question of externalities and the 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 biggest question of our time. Um, so it's very ponderous, and there's no way to be light about it. And I'm a little <laughs> afraid of that because I'm gonna, you know, it is it being Cassandra is not reputation enhancing. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a real downer. But I I feel that I have uh, I have to get it out of my system uh well well, given the ideas and the things that we've talked about and the things that you think about have you ever considered writing some science fiction uh fiction uh based on these ideas and stuff oh i've been writing science fiction since i was a kid i just never got the um i'm a very private person and uh i'm very shy and i'm very uncomfortable being in the public eye um, so this is the, you know, it's a real effort. Uh, I didn't, I don't want to be known. I don't want to be, you know, any of that. And so, no, I mean, seriously, I'm, I'm, I'm a guy no, no, who's I'm, writing. I, I like, that's, that's what I like to do. Um, you know, you should give them to your wife and let her publish them on Kindle. Ah, or somewhere. Yeah, that's true. I mean, although, you know, just being take a, it out of your hands so that you don't have to worry about the, the, you know, the embarrassment. <laughs> yeah, or, <laughs> she, she's, she has the same problem as me, you know, that's uh, why she went into academia. Um, it's, 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 it's a tough thing because uh, stories are, yeah. But I'm, I'm, I've, I've been writing this this science fiction thing, um, and we'll see what comes out of it. Okay. Um, it, it's um, it's it's more of the same. You 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 in a way, you know, I'm 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 a one trick pony. I mean, there's there's only. I I don't know. You know, some people write always write the same book, and I I. Some people, you know, uh, and I, I probably fit in that category. Um, and who knows? Uh, we'll see what happens. I, I writing science fiction is is very challenging, and writing fiction, I find it much more challenging than writing nonfiction. Sure, nonfiction to me comes rather naturally. Um, it. it the the didactic aspect of it uh, agrees with my personality because I'm trying to explain it to myself. 
right. you know, step by step, uh, and and to uh, and to capture it in my mind. Characters and psychology, they by nature they sort of escape you, and you have to to almost develop this sort of schizophrenia and and dissociation to be able to have voices in your head and then on paper that are not yours and that are really different from you. And, right, right. And, you know, not write cardboard characters. Like, I mean, God, I love Asimov, but, you know, Asimov distinguished himself by <laughs> having absolutely no interest in characters. I mean, it's exactly, wonderful yeah. uh, in a sense. And that's why, I mean, in a way, that's why it, it agrees with me so much. But, um <laughs> It's yeah, you have to get past that, and so well, well, I don't know. Maybe you could be the next Asimov. Asimov. <laughs> I don't know. It's too late, man. Uh, that guy yeah. like wrote what? He published five hundred books in his life. Yeah, it was, yeah, true. Like his uh, his uh, his nickname was the Human Typewriter. Exactly. And also, well, he was well, where can where can people find you online to learn more about you and Treconomics? Um. So on Amazon uh, first, and I do uh, um. Uh, what do you how do you say? I I do procrastinate on Twitter a lot, so at Treconomics, um, and then there's it, you can go direct to the source, so inkshares.com uh, slash book slash Treconomics, so that's the publisher, um, and they they ship, you know, I mean they sell and ship if you if you want to go through that, um, yeah, I mean you know, and I, occasionally I publish a piece or two in various outlets. Um, according to what the editors want and uh, say yes to. So um, lately I've been publishing uh, pieces at Fusion and uh, Tech Insider, Business Insider every once in a while. Um, It seems that I'm going to be around for a little longer. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Manu Sadia, author of the book Treconomics. The book is available now, as he just mentioned, so go grab a copy. And Manu, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you very much, Jeff. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.